Welcome. You're listening to the Beaver Dam Baptist Church Sunday Sermon Podcast. If you would like more information about Beaver Dam Baptist Church or have questions about today's message, please visit us on the internet at www.bdbc.org. We are starting a new series this morning, another brief series, this time on the Holy Spirit, which is actually a good follow-up to our wisdom series. We are going to start today in John's Gospel. We'll be in chapter 16, and so if you want to be finding that, we'll be reading John 16, some of those verses here in just a few moments. You know, I think in some circles, and I think we Baptists are in these circles, the Holy Spirit is often forgotten. I mean, God the Father, we know. I mean, we pray to him, we profess our love to him. In fact, we've spent two semesters in life groups very recently talking about the various attributes of God the Father, both those attributes that we share with him and those attributes that are unique to him. Then, of course, God the Son, Jesus Christ, I mean, we talk about him all the time. We talk about his moral and ethical teaching, and we strive to follow that teaching. We talk about his death and resurrection on our behalf and all that that means for us. We talk about the fact that all of Scripture is in some way pointing to Christ. And so as we read the Word of God, we are looking for what it is saying about Jesus the Son. But then God the Holy Spirit, we somewhat ignore And why is that? Well, I think we ignore him out of fear. We're afraid of being too radical, and if we are uh, heard or seen talking about the Spirit and his guidance too much and too often, we might just feel and seem out of place. I think we ignore him out of ignorance. That is, we simply don't know as much about the Spirit of God as we do the other two members of the Trinity. And therefore, because we do not know a lot, we tend to just not think about or talk about the Spirit of God. We ignore him. We ignore him out of excess. That is, we do know that there are some denominations, some people that, in our opinion, seem to go to excess when it comes to the Holy Spirit, always talking about the Spirit of God and the manifestations of the Spirit of God. And we have, in essence, gone to the opposite extreme. You know, it's very common in life that when some people go to excess and people recognize that, the default response to that is to go to excess in the opposite direction. And so even as we've seen some go in excess in their emphasis on the Holy Spirit, perhaps we've gone to the excess of a de-emphasis upon the Holy Spirit. Studies continually show us that the vast majority of Americans believe in the existence of God. Now, who that God is, is a totally different question. But the vast majority of Americans do say that they believe in God, even though we are increasingly becoming a secular nation. Most also believe in the historical Jesus. That is, if you ask people if they believe that Jesus was a real man who lived a real life, most people will say yes. Again, there will be huge discrepancies when it comes to who Jesus is and what he accomplished, but most believe in a historical Jesus. And yet about 50% of Americans say 
that the Holy Spirit is not a person. He is merely a power or a force, not a living entity. Isn't that amazing? In spite of all the religious talk in our country and the fact that a majority of people believe in God and believe in a historical Jesus, 50% or close to it say that the Holy Spirit is not the second person of the Holy Trinity. He is merely a force or a power. Now, I trust we haven't gone that far. I trust we can at least begin this series with the understanding that the Holy Spirit of God is the third member, not less in importance, but one among three, the third member of the Trinity whose involvement is so vast in all of life that we sometimes lose sight of it. And so because we have many misconceptions, we are going to do this brief series on the existence of and the person and the work of the Holy Spirit of God. And it is precisely because of these misunderstandings that I'm doing this, even though I have taught through this in other circumstances. We've talked about this in years past on Sunday nights and on Wednesday nights, but we've not done it on Sunday morning. And so this morning, we are going to start by talking about the work of the Holy Spirit. We're going to do that from John 16. And I'll begin reading in verse 5. John 16 and verse 5. But now I am going to him, this is Jesus talking, who sent me, and none of you asked me where are you going. But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper, and you notice that's capitalized in your text, the helper will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. Obviously, he's talking about the Holy Spirit. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father. And you will see me no longer concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me. For he will take what is mine and declare it to you. And all that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. A little while and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while and you will see me. Now, before we dive into the nuts and bolts of the work of the Holy Spirit, we do need to talk briefly about the who of the Holy Spirit. That is, who is this Holy Spirit of God that we are talking about? Again, with all of those misconceptions that are surrounding us, we need to start by talking about the who of the Spirit among us all. Now, when I say among us all, I do not mean that the Holy Spirit of God indwells every person. We're going to talk in the future about how the Holy Spirit indwells every believer. But when I say the Spirit of God among all, I'm simply saying that this is who the Spirit of God is. Now, what do you think about when you hear someone say the Holy Spirit? 
What images come to your mind? Well, perhaps you think of the wind like a gentle breeze. Certainly we enjoy the breeze on the hot days that we've been experiencing recently. And so you think of the Holy Spirit of God as this gentle breeze that brings comfort and assurance. And there certainly are some similarities there. In fact, the word for spirit in the New Testament is a word that also is used for breath and wind. And perhaps that's where we got the idea that the Holy Spirit is merely a force or a power. Maybe you think of a still small voice. That is, the Holy Spirit of God is somehow this voice within us that whispers to our heart or in our ear what we should do and where we should go. There is this sense among some people that certainly every decision, or it seems like every decision, is preceded by the Holy Spirit of God saying, this is what you should do, or this is what you ought not to do. So he is a still small voice of direction. Or maybe you think of the Holy Spirit of God with the idea of peace or love. Again, the idea conjures up comfort and encouragement. But I would venture to say that the most popular image of the Holy Spirit, perhaps the first thing that comes into your mind when you hear that title or that word, is the dove. And we get that rightfully from the baptism of Jesus. And you know that in that scene, the Spirit descends upon Jesus, and the Bible tells us that he did so in the form of a dove. And so ever since then, or it says in the likeness of a dove, and so ever since then, there have been pictures of doves in sanctuaries, primarily over the baptistry, correlating that seen with the baptism of Jesus. And so we tend to relate the Holy Spirit of God with the image of a dove. And while I'm not going to offer you a definition per se of the Holy Spirit, we will be looking at the work of the Holy Spirit, not only today, but throughout this series. And through that, we will come up with who he is. By what he does and what he accomplishes, we will ultimately see who he is. But the bottom line is this. The Holy Spirit of God is the divine third person of the Trinity. Again, not in, in rank. There is no rank in the Trinity. He is equally God with the Father and with the Son. He is active both in creation, if you go all the way back to Genesis, and he is active in recreation, as we will see this morning. He is distinct from the other two. And yet he is one with them, which of course you know is what we call the Trinity, three in one. In fact, let me just read for you the statement on the Holy Spirit from our Baptist faith and message, which will serve as a summary of where we are going in this series. Though do understand that our journey in this series will not cover everything that the Holy Spirit does. His ministry is very scattered. I don't mean that in a negative way. I just mean he is involved in so many different things, it will be difficult for us to hit on all of them. Sort of like your job description at work. You know what the last thing on your job description is, right? And anything else the boss tells you to do. That's the general line on the last statement of everybody's job description. And that's sort of like the Holy Spirit. His ministry is so varied, we're not going to touch on it all. All right, so let's see what the Baptist Faith and Message says. Take out your pocket copy of the Baptist Faith and Message. I'm confident that most good Baptists carry this with them wherever they go. So how many of you have it with you? 
zero. I'm the only one. All right, so let me read it for you. God, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of God, fully divine. He inspired holy men of old to write the scriptures. Through illumination, he enables men to understand truth. He exalts Christ. He convicts men of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. That's what we've just seen in John chapter 16. He calls men to the Savior. We're going to see that in a moment. And affects regeneration. At the moment of regeneration, he baptizes every believer into the body of Christ. He cultivates Christian character, comforts believers, and bestows the spiritual gifts by which they serve God through his church. He seals the believer with, or he seals believers, it's very small print, which I should have realized before I came up here. He seals believers unto the day of final redemption. His presence in the Christian is the guarantee that God will bring the believer into the fullness of the stature of Christ. He enlightens and empowers the believer and the church in worship, evangelism, and service. Okay, so that's basically where we're going over the next three weeks. We're going to be looking at all of those things or most of those things with the Holy Spirit. So from here on out this morning, I want to divide our time into two broad categories. Number one, the work of the Spirit among unbelievers. Then we'll talk about, secondly, the work of the Spirit among believers. So we're dividing it up into these two broad categories. We're going to start with those who do not know Christ, or for those of you who do, this is what the Holy Spirit of God did in your life prior to you coming to faith in Christ. So the Holy Spirit of God, His work among unbelievers. The first aspect of the Spirit's work among believers is the calling of the Spirit. I remember years ago when I was at uh, Bellevue Baptist Church teaching Sunday school, there was a, a ladies' class down the hall from me, and for some reason, this particular teacher had an annual lesson that she taught. And I wasn't in the class, obviously. I would just hear it from some of the girls, but um, I remember the title. The title was The Call of the Mall. Now, I don't know if you've got a calling to the mall, and I have no idea what her spiritual emphasis was in that lesson. I just remember the title. But what I am saying is that all of us, if we are believers, we have been called by the Spirit. And if you're not a believer, if you're an unbeliever, the Spirit of God is calling you in some sense right now. So we are talking about the call of the Spirit. Theologians divide this into two broad categories. Number one is the general call. That is exactly what I'm doing right now. That is just the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ so that anybody can hear it, whosoever will. We undiscriminately proclaim the gospel so that anybody who hears it has heard the general call. It is simply you hearing the message of the gospel in whatever means you hear it, whether it's through a, a CD or whether it's through reading the Bible or whether it's through coming to a service like this. You've heard the message of salvation. You've been invited to faith in Christ. That is the general call of the Holy Spirit of God. And this call is to be issued to all. But the fact of the matter is, all who hear it will not come to faith in Christ. So why do some respond and others do not? 
Well, some would argue that that's merely an issue of choice. That is, some simply choose to respond, whereas others don't. And if that were the case, then it seems to me that that would simply mean that some people are wiser than others. That is, if I hear the general call of the Spirit of God and I respond, then I have reason to boast compared to someone who does not because I've responded to the gospel knowing how precious it is and you have not. And yet, the Bible is very clear that when it comes to salvation, we have nothing in which to boast. Paul said it is all a work of God. Therefore, our boast is only in the cross because salvation is by God and God alone. Which leads us then to the second type of call, not only the general call, but now what we call the effectual call. This is a phrase that simply means this particular call will produce the desired results. Now, I realize that many people have a problem with this. They think that it means that human will or human responsibility, human choice is taken out of the equation. But it's not, and I'm going to come to that distinction here in a few moments. But the effectual call is the work of the Spirit in the heart of an individual leading them to respond to the general call. So I issue the general call saying, whosoever will may come. But it is the Spirit of God who issues the effectual call in your heart that leads you then to respond to salvation. You may not be aware of all of that at the moment. In fact, you may not ever come to understand all of that. But it is what the Holy Spirit of God is doing in your heart. Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. Now, I realize those are different words. He says the Father, not the Spirit. But the Father uses the Spirit, and he says draws them rather than calls them, but it's the same thing. So Jesus himself says no one can come unless the Spirit of God is working in their lives. Paul said we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, the power of or Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Peter said that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. And perhaps the, the greatest verse that declares this calling of God, this effectual calling of God is found in Romans chapter 8, where Paul says, and those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. There is what we call there an unbroken chain of salvation. Those whom he called, not the general call, because the general call goes out to all, but those who he affectionately called, he justified. And those he justified, he sanctifies. And those he sanctifies, he's going to glorify. It is that unbroken chain. When God begins salvation, he is going to complete it. And furthermore, the word church is actually the word that means called out once. It's a compound word. It is the verb to call with the prefix out of. So the very term we use to talk about who we are as a body, the church, means the called out ones. So the Holy Spirit of God, this is the work among unbelievers. There is the calling of the Spirit in these two ways. Then secondly, we move on to the convicting work of the Spirit. Now we go back to John's gospel, verse 9. 
It says there, he, he convicts concerning sin because they do not believe in me. Now, we're going to see in a moment that the Holy Spirit of God continues to convict us of our sins. As believers, the Holy Spirit convicts us of our sins. But notice there in verse 9, the word sin is singular. When it comes to the, the convicting work of the Spirit among the unbeliever, he is not talking about all the many sins that people commit. He's talking about one sin, and he identifies what that sin is, and it is the sin of unbelief. He states it very clearly there. The convicting work of the Spirit, convicting a lost person of their unbelief, must take place prior to salvation. So there is no salvation without this work of the Spirit because if you're not convicted of your unbelief, you will never come to the place where you see that there is a need for you to have a Savior. Secondly, the Spirit convicts of righteousness, verse 10. Now this is not righteousness in the sense that I'm good enough. That is, the Spirit is not about convincing you that your righteousness is good enough. No, it's the exact opposite. The Spirit's work convinces and convicts us that our righteousness will never be good enough. Or as the Bible says, our righteousness is like filthy rags in the sight of God. We can never come to salvation with our own righteousness. We must have the righteousness of another, a righteousness outside of ourselves, an alien righteousness, as we sometimes call it, which means we must have the righteousness of Christ imputed to us. And that is what the, again, you may not understand all those things, but that is what the Spirit is doing. He convicts the unbeliever of sin. That is the sin of unbelief. He convicts the unbeliever that his righteousness is never going to be good enough and therefore he must have the righteousness of Christ. And thirdly then, he convicts the world of judgment or the unbeliever of judgment. Verse 11. Now, we don't like to talk about judgment. In fact, we've said for years now that America's favorite verse is Matthew chapter 7 verse 1. Judge not lest you be judged. I really think more people know that verse today than those who know John 3.16. Everybody seems to know Matthew chapter 7 and verse 1 because we don't want to judge, though it seems like during this pandemic we're judging everybody for everything, but that's a whole other story. But John says, Jesus says, that the Spirit is going to uh, convict concerning judgment. That is, that there is a judgment to come, and if you do not get right with God, you are going to face that judgment which is motivation, of course, to get right with God. So there is this threefold aspect of the convicting work of the Spirit. He convicts of sin, that is unbelief. He convicts of righteousness, that is the need for someone else's righteousness. And then he convicts that judgment is coming unless we repent. Which finally then leads to the third thing, and that is the converting work of the Spirit. And you see the progression. The calling of the Spirit, the convicting of the Spirit, and now the converting of the Spirit. And this is where I want to try to make a distinction between God's work in salvation and the sinner's response. And I know that's difficult, but it really boils down to an understanding of two basic words. These words are regeneration and conversion. We tend to use those words interchangeably. In fact, I well remember that in my uh, doctrinal paper, in my oral exam, I had used those words interchangeably and was gently or not so gently told that I was wrong and needed to correct that. So the first word is the word regeneration. 
It is defined by Martin Lloyd-Jones as a creative act of God in which men are entirely passive and contribute nothing. It is a work of God. We have no part in regeneration. John 1 and verse 13 says, Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, nor of the will of men, but born of God. Regeneration is a supernatural work of God. You remember, I'm sure you've already memorized it. I read the statement from the Baptist Faith and Message for you a moment ago. And in that statement, it said that God call or the Spirit calls men to the Savior and affects regeneration. That's the two things we've been talking about. He calls men and it is the Spirit who regenerates. So what does that word mean? Well, regeneration is the implanting of new life into the soul. As such, it is always an instantaneous act. I mean, you cannot be partially dead or partially alive. You are either dead or alive. And the Bible makes it very clear that prior to salvation, we were dead in our trespasses and sins, and it is in regeneration that the Holy Spirit of God makes us alive. Now, you may not be conscious of that moment, And I know what some of you are thinking. You're thinking, well, my conversion was gradual. I mean, I was born and raised in a church. I went to church all my life. I heard the gospel. I really don't know exactly when I believed. I just had this gradual process whereby I came to understand the truth. And I know now that I'm following Christ. So are you telling me that my conversion doesn't match up with what the Bible says happens by the Spirit? That is not what I'm telling you. Because I haven't even talked about conversion. I'm talking about regeneration. And regeneration is always an instantaneous act of the Holy Spirit of God, whether you and I are conscious of it or not. So that leads us to our second word, the word conversion. Conversion is something we do. It is a turning away from something and a turning to something else. I mean, that is why we use that word to say someone can convert from one religion to another. Or you can convert from one sports team to another. You can forsake one and you can embrace another. So what does it mean spiritually speaking? Well, conversion means that we turn away from something. What do we turn away from? Our sin, our old way of life. And what do we turn toward? We turn toward Christ. And it involves two basic elements. Those elements are repentance and faith. Repentance is the turning away from our sin. Faith is the embracing of Christ and his work. So conversion then, in reality, is the first exercise of our new nature in its outward form. In other words, the fact that you have repented of your sins and trusted in Christ is evidence of your regeneration. That is, you are converted because the Holy Spirit of God regenerated you. Now again, that may, your conversion might happen instantaneously. You might well remember the exact time and the exact moment and what was going on. Or it may have been a gradual process. Both of those things are perfectly fine. But conversion follows regeneration. Let me give you an illustration. The first sign that a baby is born is obviously the physical emergence of the baby from the mother. But the first outward sign of life is the crying of the baby. And when you first hear those cries, it is a joyous sound to a tired mother and an anxious father. 
and that sound of crying is evidence of life. I'm sure I'm going to embarrass her, but I'll tell you what happened with Lauren here some 22 years ago. 22 years ago, we were in the hospital, and we were waiting on this whole process to play out. And at one point, the, the nurse did not like what she saw on the monitor. And so she made a call, and people started running, and I mean literally running into that hospital room. Doctors and nurses ran in the room, cleared everybody out except me, and shut the door. And they looked at Tracy, and they said, you are going to have this baby right now, or we're going to have a C-section. And the problem was, they were concerned about her heartbeat. They were afraid it was dangerously low. Now, gratefully, she was able to go ahead and deliver without the C-section. But we didn't know what was going on. This was our first child. We didn't understand all of this. I was trying to ask questions, and they were ignoring me because obviously they had more important things to do. And so we were very anxious and nervous about what all this meant. When Lauren was born and she began to cry, we were overjoyed because we were concerned that there was going to be problems because of a lack of oxygen. But now we knew she was healthy and she was alive. Now, later on, when she cried, we didn't rejoice so much. <laughs> but that first cry meant life. Now, now, was that really the first moment of life? Of course not. Now, if we didn't have technology that we have today, you might make that argument. But we have technology that tells us, not only the Word of God tells us, but technology tells us that life begins at conception. And that baby is, is growing in the womb for those nine months. The first external sign of life is the crying. But that's not the first sign of life. Likewise, when it comes to our salvation, our conversion, our repentance and faith is the first external sign of life. But that doesn't mean we haven't had life before that. Regeneration has taken place. Whether it was yesterday or, or six months earlier, it's taken place. And now conversion is the external sign of that. So all of that, I know might be a little confusing, but all of that is the work of the Holy Spirit among unbelievers. So we need to move now to the work of the Holy Spirit among believers. And I'll start by talking about the continuing work of the Spirit. And by that I simply mean that the Spirit of God remains active in your life as a believer. Now, if, if the Spirit of God has done everything we just talked about, He's called, he's convicted, and he's converted. Do you think he's just going to drop you when you repent and trust Christ? Of course not. He's going to continue to work in your life for the rest of your life. And that involves what we call eternal security. That is why we say we are eternally secure, because we know that salvation is a work of God from start to finish, and therefore when the Spirit of God converts, He is going to continue to work in our lives, drawing us further and further and closer to closer to Christ. Sanctifying us is the terminology we use. That is this process by which He makes us more and more like Jesus. And that is, again, one of the reasons why we believe in the doctrine of eternal security. Because when God regenerates, when God converts, we call it eternal life, and by very definition, it is going to last. Now, I know that we struggle with that sometimes. We struggle with it because we think the doctrine of eternal security makes it easy for people to just trust in Christ and then not do anything. But that's a misunderstanding of regeneration and conversion. And we dare not get our doctrine from experience. We need to get our doctrine from the Bible and then explain experience from it. 
So just because some people do trample upon the grace of God and say that they're believers when there's really no evidence that they are does not mean that eternal security is not a good doctrine. In fact, it just tells us, as we saw in 1 John when we studied that book, they went out from us, but they were not of us. Because had they been of us, they would have remained with us. So it is the work of the Holy Spirit of God to continue working in our lives, making us more and more like Christ. And this work is done by the Spirit in every believer. Now, there are degrees here. There are not degrees of justification. That is, either you are saved or you are not. There are no degrees there. But there are degrees of sanctification. That is, there are some Christians who are further along the path than I am. They are more mature in their relationship with Christ. And there are believers who are less further along that path. They are behind because they haven't been saved as long or they haven't been availing themselves of the means of grace, all those kinds of things. So there are degrees of sanctification. There are degrees of the work of the Spirit, but there are not degrees of justification. And the Spirit continues to work in every believer because, as Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. And that is what we're going to be talking about in the, in the weeks to come. Everything else we talk about from here on out is going to be the Spirit's work in the believer. And from here on out, it's going to be not salvation, but the continuing work of the Spirit. Secondly, we need to talk about the comforting work of the Spirit. Jesus said, I will not leave you orphans, but I will send you another comforter. And did you notice in our text, it's a very strange statement to us. Jesus said, it is to your advantage that I go. The disciples were discouraged because Jesus was beginning to teach that he was going to leave them. And they didn't know where he was going, nor what they were going to do. They'd been with him for nearly three years now, so they were clearly discouraged. And Jesus says, it is to your advantage. In another place, he says, you will do greater works than I've done. And we've always struggled with those kinds of statements. Because we've always thought to ourselves, it would be far better if we could walk physically with Jesus. Boy, what an advantage the disciples had that they physically walked with Jesus. And yet Jesus himself said, it is better for you if I go and you have the comforting work of the Holy Spirit in your life. It is the Spirit that leads us. It is the Spirit who guides us. We are not left as orphans. We are not left alone. It is the Spirit who prays on our behalf when we don't know what to say. Well, I'm running out of time, so let me go to the third work of the Spirit. It is the counseling work of the Spirit. I know it might say something different up there, and you know why? Because I forgot to put this one in. When I sent it to our folks this week, I forgot to put number three. So what you're seeing is actually number four. But the third one is the counseling work of the Spirit. He guides us in truth. Jesus said, I will ask the Father and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever. The Spirit of truth. And again, elsewhere, unless I go away, the counselor or the ESV says helper will not come to you. This speaks of the guidance of the Holy Spirit of God, which goes right into the wisdom series that we just finished. 
We talk about the Word of God being inspired by the Spirit. We're not going to talk about that in this series, but we say that often. The Word of God is inspired by the Spirit. But not only is the Word of God inspired by the Spirit, it is illumined by the Spirit. And what I mean by that is when you and I read the Bible that has been inspired, it is the Holy Spirit of God that illumines our minds and our eyes so that we can understand the very things we're reading. And that is why we need to pray for the Holy Spirit's guidance when we are reading the Word of God. These two things always go together. And I say this time and time again because this is one of the huge misunderstandings with the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God always guides in conjunction with the Word of God. And if you believe the Spirit of God is leading you to do something that is contrary to the Word of God, that is not the Spirit of God. That is absolutely true. The Spirit of God and the Word of God always go together because He is the Counselor who illumines our minds. And then lastly, we see here that the Spirit of God is the, con the, the convicting work of the Spirit when it comes to the believers. That is, the Spirit of God does continue to convict us, not of our sin of unbelief now, but of all those other sins we commit, leading us then to repentance and continued faith. Well, we've just scratched the surface this morning because as I've said, the work of the Holy Spirit of God is certainly very broad and very deep. But at least at the outset, I hope you get the idea that the Holy Spirit of God is fully divine. He is the third member, Father, Son, and Spirit of the, the Blessed Trinity. He is God even as the Father is and even, even as the Son is. And in weeks ahead, we will talk further about the Spirit's work in the life of the believer. But if you're not a believer, perhaps this morning, again, you've heard the general call. That is what I've been doing. That is what I do virtually every week towards the end of my sermon. Calling you to trust in Christ. Calling you to repent and turn to Him in faith and trust. So that's the general call. Now the question is, is that going to be effective in your life? And the only way to know that is if you respond, is if you do repent and you do by faith trust in Christ. Let me pray. Father, we do thank you this morning for the opportunity to study your word and specifically to study about your Holy Spirit. And we do pray that your Holy Spirit would work continually in our hearts and lives. For the believer here this morning, I pray that you would, by your spirit, guide us into more and more truth and more and more intimacy in the presence of God. For the unbeliever, I pray that your general call would become effectual today and that those who do not know you would respond in repentance and faith. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing.